May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Happy New Year! <laughs> it is, in fact, a new year. Advent 1 means we've begun a new church year. So, Happy New Year. So how can we describe Advent? Well, Advent is like a time of, not that I'm a very good example of this, but getting the garden ready so that you can plant new plants in it. And then planting those plants in it in hope that one day they will grow and bear fruit and that they won't just be food for the snails which have been roaming around your garden over the last few months. So, in fact, we're not doing too bad. We only lost one lettuce and one, one broccoli. So, so far, so good. And that's what Advent really is about. It's about getting the garden ready and planting the seeds. And so today, we plant the seed of hope. A seed that we hope will grow. Advent can also be described then as a time of getting ready for the greatest event in history. The time, the coming of God's reign of justice and peace and love and mercy. A coming that is seen first in the Christmas events, but Advent always looks ahead to when this time will be fulfilled. It kind of straddles both events, Christmas and the fulfilment of what is promised in the Christmas events. So, we have these four seeds that will help us get very excited, because by Christmas we should be very excited. In fact, we should be very excited today. Advent isn't like Lent, which is all kind of hunkering town and and uh, confession and repentance and penitence and all that kind of stuff. Advent really is a time of preparation and excitement. So are you all feeling excited? Because you should be. It's a new year and it's Advent. That's what it's all about. Which makes the choice of today's readings really interesting. Two of the readings have these really, really dark shadows that hang over them. And one of the reasons I went back and read a piece in Luke's Gospel that actually wasn't set down for today was it's really difficult to read what was set down for today without reading what comes straight before it, which is this huge dark shadow, the shadow of the fall of Jerusalem. So in Jeremiah, it's a kind of imminent shadow. It's thought that what we have in Jeremiah are the, are the writings, the sayings of Jeremiah. And he was prophesying in the events leading up to the first fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, which would then lead to the second fall of Jerusalem because the puppet king refused to be a puppet king. And at that point, it was all over. The temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed, and the Davidic line ends. The Davidic line which has ruled Jerusalem for over 400 years. And that's a long time. We've been, a, we've been with Parker um, settlement in here for only 170 years. It's more than twice as long as, as settlers have been in this country in, in reasonably big numbers. So that's Jeremiah's cloud and it hangs there. And there's, there's really in Jeremiah the sense that this is 
inevitable. The way the people have lived, the decisions of the kings, has led this fall absolutely 100% certain, unless, unless the people change their ways dramatically. And then in the Gospels, all four Gospels, there is the horrific events of the fall of Jerusalem. Now, I've always known that this was a cataclysmic event, but it's only in the last few weeks that I've actually read, accidentally, while reading some other stuff, more about those events. In 66, there was the beginning of a Jewish revolt. It began with riots in Jerusalem. Riots because uh, the... The successor to Pilate was trying to do things in the temple, was trying to take all the silver, I think, and the people absolutely objected. And in those riots, they rose up. The temple guard actually got galvanized, executed the high priests, and then, because uh, the high priests were corrupt and uh, appointed by Rome, and um, while well, they just weren't particularly nice people, Ananias and his family weren't the best people in the world. And then they um, actually massacred the, the Roman fortress, the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. That led the Roman governor in Syria to send an army to quell this revolt, and that army was defeated. So rebellion spread across Judea and Galilee. Well, Rome never put up with that kind of nonsense and sent 60,000 well-organized, battle-hardened legionnaires in to quell this. In the next four years, it is estimated one million Jews were killed as the legions moved from north to south, destroying every city that stood against it, every village. Another 600,000 people were then sent away as slaves to Rome. Palestine was depopulated of Jews. In the light of that, as we read today's Gospel, you can understand why the Gospel writers wrote what they wrote. What a terrible, cataclysmic time that was. 1.6 million people killed or enslaved. Jerusalem destroyed. The temple destroyed. Everything that they had hoped for, that they longed for, was gone. And yet, those are the readings we are offered on this first Sunday, a Sunday of hope. If you believe some commentators, we live in times with equally dark shadows. We have lots of news reports about terrorist activities and killings around the world, and that casts an equal, equally large pall of despair and hopelessness amongst many people. In the face of what happened in Paris and many other places, for many people it's hard to find hope in today's world. And then we have climate change and the fact that so few governments seem very committed to doing very much about it. And the hope that kind of resides in the meeting that's meeting in Paris at the moment. And yet, there's the sense that we will not deal with this properly. It's hard to hope in this time. But that is exactly what we are invited to do on the Sunday, despite the dark clouds we are to join with Luke and Jeremiah in hoping. So, what is this hope that we are supposed to have in despite of the dark clouds that gather around us? Well, there are three components to this hope. 
The first is that our hope is supposed to be in God, in God's justice, mercy, generosity and love. Or to put it another way, we are to reject trusting in the power of our own military. We are to reject and trusting in the symbols that kind of make us feel safe and secure. So for the Jews of both Jeremiah and Jesus' time, that was the temple. The temple stood as a promise that God was with those people, and as long as the temple stood, nothing bad would happen. Well, Jeremiah had a lot to say about that, and Jesus does too. This temple will be torn down. Was he talking about that temple or his own body? A bit of both, really. But he was trying to say, you hope in this big building with all its magnificent and large stones? You can't hope in that. It's also a rejection and trusting in our own actions that are built on fear and self-preservation. It's a rejection that those kind of actions will lead to any kind of hope for the future. The hope then is an absolute trust in the way of God, the generosity of God, the mercy of God, the love of God and the justice of God. An absolute found hope found in loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and loving all your neighbours as yourself, as the Torah teaches and as Jesus taught. That is where our hope lies, not in all the other ways. Three years ago I spoke about Julian of Norwich, the great English mystic and theologian who is in the Catholic Church numbered amongst the great theologians. And she wrote, at a time of incredible death, the Black Death was sweeping Europe and up to a half of the population was about to die or was dying of that disease, a disease that had started in southern China and had spread around the world through the Mongolian trade routes. And yet, despite the death and carnage that was around her from the wars that were being waged and the, and the, and the numbers dying of Black Death, she wrote, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Such incredible hope. She also wrote, if there is anywhere on earth a lover of God who is always kept safe, I know nothing of it, for it was not shown to me. But this was shown, that in falling and rising again, we are always kept in that same precious love. And she also said, God loved us before he made us, and his love has never diminished and never shall. That is where the hope of God is found, in God's love. The second component of this hope that we have this Advent is that it involves us. Sometimes we hope that God will just magic the dark cloud away. But Jeremiah didn't hope that God would magic the dark cloud away. He understood that hope resided in the people of God. And God didn't magic away the dark clouds in Luke's Gospel. Those events had already happened. They were a scar across the psyche of the whole Jewish world and the small Christian sect that was part of that Jewish world. 
and God will not magic away our clouds. So how does it involve us? It involves us because we are the means by which the cloud is diminished and defeated. Our actions when we join with God in being a people of hope. It it involves us living as if those clouds do not hang above us. It involves us living as if the reign of God is already now, because Christmas has been. And that says the reign of God has begun. It involves us in the way that we treat our families, in the way we treat our neighbours, the way we act in our neighbourhood. It involves us in our voice in the public square. We are to be a people of hope in our actions, despite all the evidence, despite the fact that we might feel like we have no hope to offer, the fact that we might be as equally under the dark clouds as anyone else. We are to act as if we are a people of hope. The final component is that when we do act as a people of hope and when we trust that our hope only resides in God, God will change us and we will be a people of hope. That hope will be born inside us. It will grow within us. I guess that's where the seeds are planted, isn't it? Within us this Advent. And as we act out despite the evidence, despite how we feel, that hope is nurtured and is allowed to grow within us. We become a people of hope, not just because of the way we live our lives, but because that is who we are, a people of hope, despite all the evidence. Like Julian of Norwich, a person of hope, despite all the evidence of the world around her, She was a beacon of hope. Hope resided within her, deeply, profoundly. And that is the greatest gift of Christmas, when we become a people of hope who see around us the glimmers of hope, knowing that God, through us, is bringing about God's reign of hope and peace and love and joy. Advent then is a time when we prepare. We prepare our gardens, plant the seeds and nurture those seeds so that they might bear fruit. And the seed we plant this week is hope. So I thought I'd do something different with the pew sheets this week. So in the theme, it's kind of less of a theme and more of a reflection with some questions And there are some questions there for you to think about and pray about during the week. So I'm kind of hoping to be less themey and more questions to reflect and pray about for the week as we go. I'm not so good at that, but we'll keep working at it to um, limit my verbosity. So the first question that I invite you to pray with this week is, how has your hope in God changed over your life? Hope is not a static thing. It wasn't a static thing for Jeremiah. It wasn't a static thing for the Christian community. They constantly had to grapple with what it is they hoped for. So how has hope for you changed over your life? 
And the second question is, in what ways might you be invited to reform your life this Advent as we prepare for Christ's coming? What new ways might you live out hope? How might you be a person of hope in your daily life? And the third question is, how are you being changed by hope? How is that changing you? So I invite you over the course of this week to plant and sow the seeds of hope, God's hope, the true hope of the world.